0: Welcome to the broadcast. It's my treat to have Ron Blue on the broadcast today. He is widely considered to be the father of biblically based financial advice. Is that even over like Solomon, Ron? I mean, are you
1: <laughs> <laughs> Oh uh, no, I wouldn't go okay. far. He's fact, the founder everything I have, I've stolen from the Bible. There you go. It's all copyrighted. we're just right. There you the go. Oh,
0: uh, that's the first time you've used that. He's the founder and CEO of the Ron Blue Institute for Financial Planning, headquartered in Indiana Wesleyan University. I'm not going to read all his Vita. I will tell you that he now leads Kingdom Advisors and has authored more than 20 books. The bestseller, Master Your Money, was first published in 1986. And we've talked many times, Ron, about when I was at Emanuel Bible Church in Springfield, Virginia, we were using that book and the six-part VHS series over and over and over again. Thousands of adults went through that program. He's written a fascinating book. It's been a couple of years called Splitting Heirs, H-E-I-R-S, and we'll probably touch on that a little bit, surviving financial meltdown, walked through the Bible ministries. He was integral in that for many, many years. In 2016, he developed God Owns It All, Funding, Contentment, and Confidence in Your Finances with Michael Blue, which is being taught in churches and faith-based groups around the country. He's got five children, 13 grandchildren, and three great-grandsons. Ryan, it's great to see you again.
1: Good to see you, Michael. I'm looking forward to this very much.
0: Me too. We go way back. We do go way back. And let's just jump <laughs> yeah. in. First of all, tell our friends biggest changes you've seen in the whole Christian stewardship finance thing in the last one, two decades.
1: Well, I think one of the most dramatic impacts on it is the whole uh, digital age that we're in now. And I've experienced that in trying to talk, to parents about training their children. You know, I trained my children on an envelope system right? where we use cash, but nobody uses cash now. And so how do you teach somebody that there is an end to resources? When you had an envelope, when the envelope was empty, you were done. You were done. Huh. But with digital resources, there is no end. That's been one of the biggest changes, I think, that I have seen. And I think the other one is that We've become more secular in our approach, Christians have. Part of that is due to the fact of the run-up in personal wealth has been staggering in the last Mm. 30 years. You had made
0: a comment to me a few years ago about the amount of wealth transferring between the builder to the boomer. What were those numbers?
1: They're all over the place, but... Let's say 40 to 50 trillion dollars trillion uh, will go from trillion. will go from the boomers to the next generation, but that next generation is now in their 50s. And so it really will probably end up in the third or fourth generation. Life expectancies have extended, and the wealth has been way more than anticipated. There's more that's going to be passed to a much more secularized, group of of believers. And, you know, this whole idea of relativism is staggering. And as we see grandkids now, it's almost incomprehensible to me. In the last two weekends, I've been to two grandkids' graduations, one from college at Colorado State and one from high school in Texas. And their view of the world and money is so far from Mine was at their age, for sure. But even my kids, it's just different. The morality has decreased. Mm-hmm. The whole idea of materialism, people don't consider that a problem. Tim Keller died last week. Yeah, I quoted Tim one time as saying, and he did, that he's heard every sin confessed in his study with the exception of greed. and you know if you start looking through the scripture and you start reading and you see that word greed it just pops up all the time we don't talk about greed much
0: at all lust of the flesh lust of the eye and the boastful pride of life i remember in seminary prof quoting you talking about one in seven verses in the new testament addresses money in in some way shape or form more so than heaven which is pretty astonishing I want to go back to the tangible nature of cash and envelopes versus digital, even the way we use bones for everything. I watch how people pay their water bills. They you know, pay their, the person that mows their yard with a Venmo or some kind of app. And I have a theory with a real Bible and taking notes in a real Bible. With a, I often say you go to the store and you can buy a thing called a pen. And it's really, it writes on paper and I make this big mockery of it. And I go, there's something about the tactile nature of taking notes when you hear a sermon or a Sunday school lesson that is different than using a tablet or your thumbs. There's something with the neuroplasticity going on. Any thoughts? And I know this is probably just, you know, opinions. Maybe you've done study on it. But the idea of having that cash, Dave Ramsey talks about it. When you have, you know... Several hundred dollars in your wallet, you're less apt to spend it than if you have several hundred dollars in a debit card. And it's there's something about the tangible nature of commerce that has a not just a restraint, but just a care with what we're doing with it.
1: There's no question, and I tell you personally, something that has helped me: I carry a lot of twenty dollar bills in my billfold. And make it a practice to try to give away those 20s throughout, not necessarily a day. But my most favorite is, I do a lot of travel. I've been on 10 airplanes in the last 10 days. Oh, my. So I've been through a a lot of airports. And if you go into an airport, there's always those people who clean the bathrooms. And they're invisible. Yes. Unless you look for them. I'd look for those people and give them a at least a $20 bill and just say, thank you for what you do. Well, you know, pulling out a 20, there's something very tangible about that. Mm-hmm. And giving it to somebody, it puts a context of money, for me anyway, into a different feeling. Judy and I stopped giving online also. You know, by January 1, I knew what my income was likely to be for the year. I'm a planner. So... I had it planned. All I had to do was to put it into the online system at the and say, take out 152nd of this amount every week. So my tithing was done on January 2nd for the year. Well, there was no real sense of tithing when you do it that way. It was just another mechanical thing. So we started under the influence of uh, Robert Morris, who's a pastor up in Dallas, He used an illustration of how he and his wife gave, and and Judy and I picked up on that. And so now, on Sunday morning, I use Quicken. I have a little report that pops up for me on Sunday morning, this week's tithe. And what it is, is it shows the income that I got this week and where it came from. And so I write it down on a three-by-five card. We got a royalty from Moody, and I got a salary check, or I got a Social Security check, or whatever it may be. I write it down total it up, put 10% of it, and then I write the check, but I don't sign it. And I take the card and the check down to breakfast. Judy and I generally have breakfast together. And she signs the check. But she looks at that three-by-five card. It's changed our whole sense of tithing because Mm -hmm. we realize the incredible blessing that God has poured down on us. And we have that visible reminder every week plus mm-hmm. it allows her and i to communicate yeah better about money so now we're talking about some things that we never had an occasion to talk about before she signs a check and she's the one who literally puts it in the plate we may be the only ones putting money yeah. in the plate on sunday morning <laughs>
0: well two side stories with that i have a friend pastor dave gibson he was at a church that had multiple services. He would physically write a check at each service. He said, I didn't do it so people would see me put something in the offering. I did it because I felt I'm going to worship empty-handed. And when Cindy and I, we had a big discussion years ago about doing it electronically because it's out of sight, out of mind, just, like, just as she mentioned. right? She liked that idea of writing a check. And, and looking at it just for the exact same reason. So so there is a tactile nature. Now, can we still be generous with a digital age?
1: Of yes, for sure we can. This has just been on my heart and my mind mm-hmm. l- literally for the last several weeks. I woke up during the middle of the night one night, and for whatever reason, the word generosity popped into my mind. And I began thinking about generosity thinking, I think we've got it wrong. Mm. And so, to me, generosity has always been symptomatic of transformation. True generosity. And when people are transformed in their hearts, they will naturally give. And the more they get to know our Lord, the more they want to give and participate in the kingdom work. Two weeks ago, I was teaching a Bible study on God owns it all. And I took a $20 bill out of my pocket, and I walked over to one of the participants, and I gave him the $20. I said, this is yours. And then waited a little bit, and I said, now I want you to give that $20 to this lady sitting over here, which he did. And she started to give it back to me, and I said, no, that's yours. And here's the question I asked the class. I said, who was generous there? This guy gave $20 everything that he had. Was he the one that was generous? And, of course, the answer was no, because he gave something that he received. He didn't give something of his own. And I think that that's where we've missed it on generosity, is we're looking at people as being generous as as opposed to God's the one that's generous to give me the ability to give. But I'm not generous. I'm (laughs) I'm obedient, okay, and I'm thankful but God is the one that is really the generous one in, in that mm-hmm. particular example. And the other thing is that stewardship, we've put stewardship and generosity together, but the reality is that stewardship is much broader than generosity. Stewardship is life-changing because I'm steward of everything. Right. If we can get across to people, first of all, the concept and reality of stewardship, then the generosity will occur. So we don't have to focus on the generosity. We need to focus on the discipleship aspect, mm-hmm. you know. And you went to Dallas, and and Prof was so big on discipleship. Yeah. And that's another big change that I've seen in the church is that word is not even used that much anymore, let alone churches discipling. You know, when I became a believer in 1974, I was in a discipleship group within a week. Right. Through CBMC at that particular time, yeah. <laughs> and and I got discipled, but that doesn't happen anymore, to any extent.
0: Yeah, the church has changed in some in some sectors irreparably, but you know we still have hope because it's His church, not ours, right? You know, the stewardship principle is interesting because Ralph Whites was considered the first stewardship pastor in America. Larry Burkett actually wrote a piece about that when. Emmanuel hired him. You remember Sam Erickson, I'm sure. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and Sam was involved in this campaign and Ralph kind of you no, know, he didn't kind of he came in and, and made the thing work at Emmanuel, but it wasn't just teaching giving or pledge drives or commitment cards. It was there was a whole array of things. Master your money, later Crown, later Financial Peace University. And he and some other folks developed an investment course a couple of week course on, okay, now you've done these things, how do you invest and how how do you invest wisely? And then we'd have testimonials from people who had given more and more and more away and found I can live on 80% as well as 100. I can live on 90% as well if not better than 100. And it's those kind of examples that I think we, we do miss ostensibly with not having discipleship programs let let me change gears a little bit and ask specifically because you've been around you've watched and studied this a lot so builder boomer and then let's jump to the gen z's the gen x and y and z beyond the digital observation what other trend or observation do you see the way they look at distribution of wealth generosity giving in general
1: well, I had a father ask me one time, he said, how do you teach your children to manage money? Off the top of my head, I said, well, I can tell you this, more's caught than taught. Sure. That's a direct quote from Hendricks, okay? Sure. <laughs> and I said, secondly, you learn to manage money by managing money. <laughs> you can't just be told because you need to have the experience of making mistakes. And he said, you know, after you said that, I realized my kids have never seen me give a nickel. So where are they going to catch it? That's a pretty significant thing. And how do you teach that next generation good money management principles, which are a part of stewardship, but they're not all of stewardship, of course. I've got a remark on Emmanuel. I'm trying to recreate right now in every church I can what you experienced at Emmanuel. Mm-hmm. And my model is youth ministry because youth ministry was just like financial ministry back in the 60s, it was all parachurch driven. Youth ministry wasn't even in the churches right So two guys started out to put youth ministry into the churches and they built uh, what's now a well-known company, nonprofit called youth Specialties. It took them 10 years to get it going, but they they are the go-to source for youth ministry. There is no go-to source for financial ministry. Yeah. You've got people like Dave that touch a lot of people, and then Crown and Compass and Good Sense and some other ministries are very good Bible studies on money, but they don't translate necessarily in managing money. And that's what God gave me over the years, the experience of managing money and making those financial decisions, how they're made and what's the biblical basis of them.
0: We probably had five different financial planners in our lives, and the most recent ones we've had now for the past six, seven years, run, they were the first ones. You know, I, I tell people this, and I've been accused of bragging and other things, and I just say, look, it, this has been God's kindness to us. I'm not bragging because he owns it all, but we try to give at least 20% away. And there's times it's been more, times it's been less, but that's our goal People get, well, you're bragging about how much you give away. I go No, I'm trying to be a good steward of what God gave us. But we sat down with these planners a few years ago and you know, we don't have a mortgage. You know, we live under our income, et cetera. All those things that you taught, that Ramsey taught, that Crown taught. And they were the first ones, Ron, who said, Guys, you've got your kids pretty well set up for an inheritance. You can give away more if you want, but have you thought about doing something for yourselves? And, Ron, we felt guilty thinking about doing something for ourselves. It took us about a year to process through that question, but these 40-year-old guys kept pushing us. And we ended up doing something that it was for us, but it really wasn't. It was for our kids and others. And it was a capital expenditure we did, and our kids can use it, and their friends can use it, and you know we can use it, and our friends can use it, and we can give it away to people to use And it's been so much fun to watch that. But point being, you know, always steward, never owner. And when you get to the point where, yeah, you could build some more barns or you could give more away, or maybe you build a barn and give more away. But I think you're right on the transactional part, the transformational part that we're always steward, never owner. I think that's hard for the Western pry my fingers, you know, away from, and truth be told. Does Ron Blue always trust God even when the market dips? Do you always trust God when 30% of your retirement's gone in the last 20 months?
1: <laughs> Just got <come> that. To-
0: <laughs> Michael doesn't. <you> know? <laughs> Michael starts worrying.
1: <laughs> well, the reality is that if God owns it all, I can't lose 30%. So
0: he lost thirty <laughs> percent.
1: That's exactly right.
0: I'm going to tell Cindy that yeah. when I get home today, honey, your IRA your 401 did not lose thirty <laughs> percent. Ron said it, so. You no, know,
1: if you had the eternal perspective, what you do, of course, then he owns it all. And economies, I've lived now through eight decades. How did you're only sixty?
0: How How'd you do that? Yeah, (laughs) I
1: feel like that's a funny
0: math you guys have.
1: (laughs) But I, you know, I've seen double digit inflation. I've seen stock market crashes. I've seen housing crashes. Mm. I've seen stagflation. I've seen 14% interest rates on home mortgages, 21% primary. And I've seen wars and rumors of wars. (laughs) So if you don't have the eternal perspective, you'll never get your thinking right around that issue. There's two things I'd like to communicate to an audience. Number one, that economic uncertainty is absolutely certain. Okay? I don't know what the bad news is going to be tonight when I listen to the news, but there will be bad news. There will be bad news, yeah. There will be bad news. The second thing, though, is what I would call the paradox of prosperity, Michael, and that is... Mm. The paradox of prosperity is the more you have, the more choices you have. And the more choices you have, the less freedom you have because you're always managing. Now, I'm not saying poverty is godly, but I am saying that more is never the answer to financial contentment and security. The Bible says, be content with what you have. Mm-hmm. not what you don't have or not what you would like to have. So if I don't learn contentment that way, and Paul said the same thing, I learned contentment. Mm-hmm. And I can feel contentment, but I cannot feel financial independence. Mm. So I could tell you, you've got enough money that you're financially independent and here's the numbers, here's the worksheet. It will not engender any feeling, but when you're content, you know when you're content. And you can look at what you have and say, that's nice. Thank you, Mm -hmm. Lord. Mm -hmm. And not be driven by, yeah, but I'd sure like to have whatever the case may be. So the paradox of prosperity is more is never the answer. I was teaching
0: a church a couple of weeks back some lessons in 43 years of ministry. And one of them was I was in seminary. I was so poor. And I called a doctor friend of mine who lived in Nacogdoches, and I said, I'm not asking you for money. I'm asking you for help, guidance. And he told me two things. One was, he said, your money problems and mine are exactly the same. There's just more zeros in front of the decimal point. And the second thing he told me was, it's never the amount you have, it's what you do with what you have. Now, my rejoinder at that time was I don't have anything <laughs> and I still got to pay bills, but, but I went as any good seminary student would do. And I pulled out my Greek lexicon. I looked up every time the word contentment occurred in the new Testament, it was a very short study and it means enough. Mm-hmm. And when Paul says, I've learned to be content in whatever situation enough. And isn't that just countercultural with the Western mindset of bigger, better, newer, more. It's never enough. I mean, h- how many people have you counseled that say our standard of living is here and we stopped? I think last time you and I chatted, we talked about our friend Barnhart, who, you know, he mm-hmm. and his brother said, this is enough. And they've given millions away. And his company owns that it's sort of that's their philosophy is we're going to give as much away as we can. It's like bluebell ice cream, right? we sell all we can we eat the rest or i'm getting it backwards eat all we can and we sell the rest yeah and we give it all away and it gives you this freedom but you know ron i like to look at that 401 and that ira and my social security check and i want to be content but sometimes
1: i wonder the answer is that when i look at those things There are a couple of things. Number one, one of the best decisions that I made in building a financial planning business was I required every financial planner to have a financial planner, myself included. In fact, I talked to my financial planner this morning. It's not that I don't know the money Mm -hmm. and money management, but I can't hold myself accountable, Mm -hmm. nor can I necessarily communicate in a way that my wife understands. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> really? After eight decades, huh? <laughs> after
1: eight decades. <laughs> we developed a tool called the 4-H tool. I don't, don't know if you've heard of it. You could go on the ronbluinstitute.com website and look for the 4-H tool. And the reason for that, it's a framework for thinking about money that's holistic in its approach. And everything on there is biblical and it's got the reference on it. Mm. Good. I believe that pastors know more about money than 80%, 90% of the wealth advisors in this country. Wow. Wow. But they don't know what they know. And so they're afraid to talk about money for a couple of reasons. One, they're afraid of being misperceived as being greedy. Number two, they're afraid that they're going to make a mistake with that millionaire that's sitting there right in front of them and be a fool. And third, they may not be managing their own money very well.
0: Thirds number that's the one I've observed my pastor buddies over the year trying to encourage them to get their finances in order. And they go, how do you insane you do it? And I go, just like everybody else says it you live on less than you earn, you give, you save, you pay down your, your mortgage. You know, and it, it's that simple, but it's, we're looking for the quick thing, not the, you know, 10, 20 year plan, right? And, it is simple, as Dave says, God and grandma's way. I, I love that because it's, it's just that simple. You don't spend money you don't have to buy something that you, don't, you can't own. Back to your contentment observation, we were in seminary house-sitting, a very wealthy family, and they were so generous. We watched our kids while they were on a trip. Ron, I was so worried about taking care of their stuff that I really couldn't enjoy the home I mean, and they had a swimming pool and multiple cars and a tennis court and freezer full of steaks. I mean, we were poor seminary students that didn't have ground beef very often. And I, I just remember being so anxious. And I remember going home going, that was a lesson for Cindy and me to say, you know, the more you have, the more you have to manage. Back to your point. And it's anything but restful. It, at least for me, it created create lots of anxiety. Let me ask some more specific questions. What do you say to folks that are facing, quote, retirement? And that's a a ubiquitous term, but they're going to quit their primary income generating business or job. They're going to start maybe, you know, drawing down on their retirement, maybe taking their Social Security, Medicare. What are two or three things that folks that age group need to pay attention to?
1: Well, hopefully they paid attention throughout time so that they've got enough. But I will say this. The rules don't change when you retire. Okay. It's what you mentioned. I don't know if you did it intentionally or not, but there's only five habits you have to master. We call it live, give, oh, grow. I spend money to live, living within my income. I spend money to give, and giving breaks the power of money always. That's why God wants us to give. Mm -hmm. I spend money on what I owe, which is debt and taxes, two things. And I save money to grow. So I continue those habits in retirement, and there are no other habits. When you have those five habits mastered, then that's the way you live your life. And you're going to live your life all the way through your life. And there's only Those five habits, and there's only five things you can do with money, which I just said. Basically, spend it to live, give, oh, grow. So you have the habits that you master, living within your income, avoiding the use of debt, building margin, uh, setting long-term goals, avoiding the use of debt. Those are the habits. There's only five uses of money. I look at those five uses, and, and again, if you go on our website, you can use an Excel spreadsheet, and in about 15 minutes, you can fill out a pie diagram just by looking at your tax return and putting the numbers in. And that shows you your priorities. Mm -hmm. And when first time I did that and I showed it to my wife, it's a number of years ago. Now she looked at that pie chart for about 30 seconds and she said, we're doing okay, aren't we? (laughs) And and I said, I've been telling you that for 35 years. (laughs) She said, I needed yeah, a picture. You, exactly. She said, You showed me Excel spreadsheets. I can't read in an Excel spreadsheet.
0: I'm with your wife. Yeah. You guys that live spreadsheets are wired differently. Yeah. You know. But okay, the principles don't change, but we got to decide inheritance. And again, five planners I've had had five very different takes on how to do that. Yeah, I do think I know a little bit more. I, back to your point about pastors knowing about money. Not only do are they poor with it, they're afraid to ask. <laughs> and I'll never forget the guy that taught me how to ask. And he said, People with wealth, and he used an example like with your $20 bill that you gave. He said, I'm going to run for political office. Would you give me $100,000? And I said, I don't have $100,000 to give you. He said, Would you give me $5,000? I said, Well, I guess I'd have talked to my wife about it, and then he said, "Did I offend you when I asked you if you could give a hundred thousand sure. dollars?" And I said, "Of course not." And he said, "You never offend a person on asking them to give more than they're willing or capable." Now it goes if they get offended, there are other issues going on, but he said, "Generosity—it's like when I give it when you give a twenty away, another friend of ours gives hundreds away when he walks through a place." Yeah, yeah. Well, he's got a different. You know, stack of, of bills than you and I have. And I'm the same way. I, we keep $20 Starbucks cards in my briefcase when I travel. And you know, I like to give those away. And maybe I should do a $20 bill these days because not everybody wants to drink coffee. But be that as it may, it's fun, it's easy, it's generous, but it's individual, right? So when I'm looking at four children or two children, how do they figure out how to – what do they give them? And then added layer to this, Ron – Some kids aren't as good with money as other kids are.
1: So I have a principle that I think is biblical. And that is, if you love your children equally, you'll treat them uniquely, Mm. which is the way God deals with us. The American way is you divide it by the number of kids that you have and divide it equally. Your kids aren't all equal. Some have Different needs. You know, what if you have a child that's got a handicapped child, Mm -hmm. for example, or somebody that's had trouble maintaining a a daughter that's had married to a guy that's had trouble keeping a job. So circumstances are different and and they change over time. And so it took Judy and I two years of asking the kids, asking two questions. Number one, what's the worst thing that can happen if we give X child X amount of dollars? And the second question was, well, how serious is that? And the third was, how likely is it to happen? Mm. So, and I could give you several illustrations on on that, but now our oldest child is 56, youngest is 45. Well, they've raised their families basically. Right. So we've seen that, and the reality is that, for the most part, they don't need any more money. Yeah. You know, They've sent their kids to college. they bought their home that they want, and they have established the lifestyle that they want. So now if you're going to give them more money, what's it going to do? It's probably going to end up into the third and fourth generation. So Judy and I made the decision that we want to give away as much as we possibly can because our kids don't need the money, mm-hmm. and we want the joy of giving it now. Yeah. So the most important point is things don't change when you retire.
0: I could talk to Ron Blue all afternoon. He has a hard stop, and we're going to have all the information about more than you will ever need. In the show notes below, you can find out about Ron and the ministry he continues to have, and we'll get you back on the podcast again, hopefully in the not-too-distant future. Thanks for your ministry and your friendship all these years, Ron.
1: Michael, if you ask me, then be on. I'll be on. I love talking to you. So call me.
0: We'll do it. Okay. All right. Good to be with God you. God bless. Thanks. Thank you, sir. Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular
1: listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed
0: and mastered by Sonomorphic, and music composed by Tycho and Blair Masters.